Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, verses 16 through 32 today. Mark 15, 16 through 32. Just join me, join me in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we are uh, grateful. We are grateful for the grace that has been shown to us, the steadfast love that you have shown to us. For when we were caught in our sins, we <coughs> called unto the Lord and you heard us. You brought us up from the pit and placed us upon the rock. We pray, Father, that uh, we would uh, continue to recount the way that you've been faithful. We pray, Father, today that uh, you would be in our midst by your spirit, that you would uh, speak to us, that you would help us to understand what has been accomplished through the crucifixion of our Lord. We pray, Father, that uh, you would give me utterance. We pray, Father, that uh, your spirit would just be at work. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 15, 16 through 32. There are a few ways that we could go through, we could look at this passage. Uh, one way that I would like to do, but which I won't have time to do, and I'll ask you to uh, have a look at it on your own. There are many allusions to Psalm 22 in this particular section of Mark. And within the Psalter, you have, you have this idea from the very beginning of the enthronement of God, or ultimately the enthronement of God's Son. So if we look in, in Psalm 1, we have the blessed man, blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 2, it seems that this man, this figure from Psalm 1, turns out to be the anointed of the Lord, and he is exalted. He is enthroned on Zion. He's enthroned on Zion and all of the kings of the earth, the kings of the world, the kings of the earth, it says there, this is taken from, uh, from the conquest of Joshua. The kings of the earth had gathered against, uh, together against the Lord and his anointed, and they had come together to stop the sun from being <coughs> enthroned in the land. By the end of the song, the, the psalm, the, the person, the son, it says, is enthroned on Zion, and he is going about to subdue his enemies. Once we, once we get out of Psalm 2, however, we get the impression that all isn't quite well, that the figure that is enthroned may actually be going through suffering. And that actually the way that he is going to be enthroned is through that suffering. And if we read, we step back from the Psalter and we read it that way, there's this, this mysterious working where you have this suffering and then you have exaltation. You have this suffering, then you have vindication. And I suggest that this is actually what is informing our gospel at this point in, in, in Mark's gospel. We can see this especially in Psalm 22, 
which I won't go to, but which I would encourage you to look at, at the beginning of the Psalter, he has cried out, why have you forsaken me? <coughs> at the end of the Psalm, the end of Psalm 22, he's proclaiming the good news among the nations. Suffering, vindication. Suffering, vindication. This is what's going on in our gospel as well. Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. This is the Roman battalion that they're calling together. So the Jews have delivered over Jesus to the Roman authorities. And now they're leading him away to crucify him. <coughs> then in between the actual crucifixion and the leading him away from, from the Jewish authorities, now the Romans have him and they begin to mock him. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, a si uh, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the, uh, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This also alludes to Psalm 22, verse 18. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the second time this is repeated, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. You'll notice in some texts you won't see that. In ESV you won't see that. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, let the Christ, the King of Israel, third time, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Up until this point, Mark has worked his gospel into a crescendo of horror. As we have seen, come to see what first century justice looks like. The way, as Pastor Rob mentioned last week, that Pilate was concerned not with justice, but with expediency. How in a bid to maintain his position and keep some semblance of peace within his realm and to appease the Jewish authorities and the people of that time, to main maintain his own hold on power, he murdered the Son of God, 
and let a guilty Barabbas, a true brigand, go free. One, <coughs> a revolutionary seeking to undermine and possibly overthrow Roman rule. The other, who would not lift a finger in violence against his enemies, but who would, by giving his own life as a ransom for many, as Mark says, would defeat all the powers of this world that were crucifying him in order to himself institute a reign of justice, a just reign to bring in the kingdom of God. And it is at this point in Mark's gospel that surprisingly we see just how God will bring about this reign of justice, the kingdom of God. But it is surprising. The death at the hands of the Romans as a revolutionary. He was numbered with the transgressors. The story is perhaps too familiar to us. If we back up and look at the book as a whole and perhaps look at it from the point of view of an outsider, we might be baffled to see the tragic end that has come to such a promising career. We might think, like many Jews today, that messiahs are not crucified. If anything, they crucify others because a messiah is a king and a king has authority. Might we not have counseled him had we been his friend or parent? Just lay low, don't ruffle too many feathers. Don't continue on and on about the kingdom of God. People will think you are leading an insurrection against Rome and we know what happens to people that do that. Don't you know what happens to rebels? They are crucified. That's what the Romans did to people who sought to undermine their power. They killed them, and that's what they do with Jesus. Isn't this the message of Pilate? Do you not know, Jesus, that I have power to take your life and to preserve it, he says? This is a question of power. And what greater threat can a ruler wield than the power of death? But if we step back and look at the book as a whole, we will see that what we are seeing, as tragic as it is, actually is the, is the story of the enthronement of God's Messiah. If we look at the book as a whole, we will see that what is happening in this chapter is actually the enthronement of God's king. How can we say this? First, if we look at the language of our text today, we will see that the language that they are using is royal language. Note in the text that they say, king of the Jews twice and king of Israel once. Three times a variant on this phrase, and this is quite intentional. It's intentional, of course, to them, but it's intentional for Mark to bring this in in telling his story. The other gospel writers tell it a little bit differently, but this is very intentional. We know that they did not intend the crowd or themselves. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe that he was the king. They, of course, are using it to mock Jesus. But within Mark's book, and this is important, it serves to bring out the strange irony about what is happening in the crucifixion of Jesus. This is the irony. Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God, 
But when the climax comes, Jesus is being mocked and killed for what he said about himself. He seems powerless. By claiming only cryptically that he was indeed Israel's true king, who was bringing about the kingdom of God, he suffers the fate of all would-be rebels against Rome. We have been told from the beginning of Mark that Jesus is bringing about God's kingdom. But what a strange way to do that. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus comes to Galilee preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled, he says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from the way you think about the kingdom of God and believe the good news that I'm telling you about it and follow me. 115. By preaching the kingdom, he is saying that he himself is in some way bringing it about. But how will he do this if he is crucified? To ask it is to answer it. It is through his crucifixion that he is enthroned as the rightful king of God's kingdom. Now remember what Jesus has done so far. He has announced that now is the time for Israel to return from exile. He has indicated that he himself is going to bring about Israel's return from exile that was brought about by her transgressions. Mark has indicated this would be the effect of Jesus' ministry at the beginning of the gospel. Recall the two quotes at the beginning of the first chapter. They serve to frame this whole book. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Number one, this is from Malachi 3.1. The second one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. These two quotes, the second from Isaiah 40 verse 3, these two quotes as we saw at the beginning frame the whole book and indicate for us the readers, that whatever is happening in the book is in some way bringing about the return of Israel from exile. Unless, of course, he has failed. But that's not what Mark is wanting to tell us. The parable of the sower also says that God is, God is bringing about a new planting. He is going to, he's going to bring about a successful planting. This metaphor of the Lord planting Israel back in the land is what is being employed here. So as to say, now is the time for Israel to return from exile. And Jesus himself is claiming to bring it about. This planting of the Lord will yield fruit, abundant fruit, when the word of Jesus does its work. But a seed can only bear fruit if it dies in the ground. Secondly, what has Jesus been saying he's going to do from the beginning? Well, he called a new Israel. Just like before the first exodus from Egypt, Israel has to be formed. Thus he calls 12 disciples in chapter 3, a highly symbolic act that would indicate that he is forming a new Israel. And this Israel is going to be given a new mission, just like Israel was given a mission to the nations. When he is raised, we will see, they are sent out. Israel, the new Israel, symbolically enacted in his disciples, will go to the nations. What else has he done? He has exercised authority over the powers by healings and exorcisms. 
And in every place that he would go, he would heal the sick, the blind, the maimed, and he would exercise his power, his good and just power, over the powers that had held this world captive. He would set people free. And we should keep this in mind as we look at the way that the exercise of power is being portrayed here within our text. One, the Gentiles. How do they exercise their power over humans? Two, how does Jesus and how does he expect us to exercise power over people? One, through force and coercion and violence, the other through healing and liberation. We should keep this in mind as we come to the end of the gospel because it is saying something to us about the use of power. What else has he done? The Gentiles do not figure prominently within the gospel. There are a couple of incidents within the gospel where Jesus' actions seem to indicate that there is in the future coming this great, this great exodus of the Gentiles themselves, but not much, and this is intentional. Why would he indicate that the Gentiles come later? What's going on with this? Something has to be done for Israel first because God's promises were to Israel. Israel herself is going to be sent among the nations, but their sins have to be dealt with. And I suggest this is what's going on in the gospel. Jesus is bearing the curse for Israel's sins that has prevented her from being a light to the nations. And then they will be sent out among the nations as we see in, in Paul. We have also seen uh, within some of his actions that he is healing and casting out demons among the Gentiles but it's not very much. In chapter 4, we saw Jesus get into the boat with his disciples and head over to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes. In other words, to the land of the Gentiles. He doesn't spend much time there, but as a preview of coming attractions, he casts out a multitude of demons from this man. And then he departs and goes back into his own land. In another place, in one other place, in chapter 7, he went into the region of Tyre and there cast out a demonic spirit from the daughter of a Gentile woman. And finally, something that we haven't given much attention to, which explains many of the miracles of Jesus, in his healings, in these healings, but in the healings of, of those within his own realm, he is decisively defeating the powers of this world that have bound people. But these powers are not only manifested in those who are bound by them among the people, these powers are manifested in the leaders of this age and the powers that had ruled the Jews and the world. And this is what we come to at the end of the gospel. Throughout the gospel, we have seen that those who prefer death rather than life have been seeking to stop Jesus from bringing in the kingdom. And here within our current text, those who could not win by arguments believe they will win by force. And they seem to. But the wisdom of God is wiser than man, and God will put, a sh put to shame the wisdom of the wise 
through the foolishness of the cross. For the message, Paul says, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You think about, you think about what happens in the gospel. This happened every day in the first century. Every day, brigands were crucified, people, criminals were crucified. But just this one, this one that seems to be folly to the world is bringing life to those who are being saved. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's the point. All of these things that Jesus has been claiming that he is doing or would do must be accounted for here at the end of Mark's book. Think about this. You read a book, and the end does not compute with the beginning. You say, well, this book doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Nothing fits. Everything that Jesus is, has been claiming that he's doing or would do must be accounted for at the end of Mark's book in order for the book itself to make sense. What kind of book would this be if the central figure was unable to accomplish what he had been saying all along? <coughs> if the end of the book, which is where we are now, doesn't answer the question of how, then it is not answered, and what Jesus has claimed to be doing never came about. For what the resurrection will do at the end of this book is vindicate everything that he has said he is going to do. Thus, the crucifixion must be said to accomplish these things. It is the means by which the new Israel would be constituted as the initial formation of the new people of God. The crucifixion is the means by which God would do that. It is the means by which Israel can be forgiven, brought out of exile, and consequently be sent to the nations. It is the means by which the world, too, can experience true healing, true forgiveness of sins. It is the means by which the world can be brought out of its exile, which it's been in since Adam. It is the means by which the kingdom of God comes upon the world. It is the means by which the new covenant would be made in the blood of Jesus, his cross. And lastly, though likely incomplete, it is the means by which the powers of this world and the powers behind the powers of this world would be defeated. This is something that I believe this section of Mark is getting at. What do we make of the language here in Mark 15? And what is it that Mark is saying by it? Note in verse 17. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. What are they doing here? Well, it's obvious that they're mocking his claim to the throne of Israel, even though he himself had only minimally claimed that he was the king of the Jews. He'd never gone about saying it. He claimed he was the one who was bringing the kingdom. But they ran with the claim. It was not the first claim to royalty in that time, nor would it be the last. There would be many who would claim the throne of David, and there would be many who would experience a similar death to that of Jesus of Nazareth. Simon Bar-Giora was one such revolutionary who was made a part of the royal procession given the mocking title, King of the Jews. This is what they did to those who claimed to be leaders of the Jews. They would crown them as king and then execute them. 
He was executed in Rome at the close of the war on Jerusalem in AD 70. Just so everyone knew that there was only one king, Caesar. They even struck him with a reed, likely to evoke images of Herod, whose symbol was a reed. So to say, perhaps, Herod knows who the true king is, and it's not him. Eventually, they strip off the purple robe from Jesus and put his old clothes back on. You see what's happening here? Enthronement, dethronement. This is how they mock kings. We'll put the kingly clothes on you, and then we'll strip them off of you. They enact an enthronement and dethronement in their little skit. He is then taken to Golgotha to be crucified. What is Mark saying by these details? Here, Jesus' royalty, and thus his title, is being stripped from him from one point of view. But from Mark's point of view, his royalty is being established, but it is being redefined. Remember when we discussed what the term son of man meant and means within the context of the Gospels in Daniel. Remember that we said the figure of the son of man in Daniel was meant to capture both the suffering of this figure at the hands of the nations, the kings, and also meant to capture the vindication of the one who is suffering at the hands of the nations. Remember that in Daniel, in almost every scene, either Daniel or his colleagues are suffering for their obedience to God. And in every instance, God delivers them from their suffering and exalts them in different ways. Finally, in Daniel 7, one like a son of man, a cryptic figure who likely represents those who have been suffering in the previous chapters, is exalted to the right hand of God, the Ancient of Days, and given a kingdom and rule over all the nations that have been ruling over and persecuting God's people. And in Mark 15, Mark may not mention here the Son of Man in this section, but it doesn't mean he has left that behind. For it is the Son of Man, he says in 8.31 and 9.12, who must be who must suffer and be raised. It's this image that stands behind our text today, the suffering and the vindication of the Son of Man, and we are in that suffering phase. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said to them, it's 8.31 and 9.12, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of, of, of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 9.12. He has not left this behind when we get to the end of the gospel. And it must explain, the end of the gospel must explain what he means by this. At this point, the point that I'm making here is that the Son of Man in Daniel and in this particular book is a royal figure. He is a royal figure who is going to be enthroned over all the nations. And it's in the crucifixion that Mark is telling us this is happening. <coughs> in this section, all we know is that Jesus is being stripped of everything that signifies his royalty. But this is a way that Mark explains his enthronement. Here, 
as in other places in the Bible, Mark is defining what it means to be truly royal. This is a very important point. We often read these stories as if they're just, this is just history, this is, this is what happened, and that's all there is to it. But in the description of what happens, Mark and the other gospel writers are defining or redefining what it means to be royal. Common understanding of Jesus' Jesus's coming is that uh, he just came to teach us how to live, that he's a teacher of wisdom, a good moral teacher who tells us and shows us how to live and to love our fellow man. We hear it much. And while there's a bit of truth to that, this is a sub-biblical notion about what the Gospels are telling us, a very surface reading. The biblical story of mankind from the beginning is about royalty gone wrong. And if that is how mankind has gone wrong, would this not be what God is restoring? Consider the larger biblical story. What is it that mankind is given to do in one Genesis 1, 26 through 28? Be fruitful. He blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's kingly language, royal language. To rule, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the creeping things and over the land. And what does Adam do? What does humanity do? Because we're in Adam. They fail in their mission to rule God's creation. Thus they fail in their royal commission. But they are still royal. Humanity, you are still royal. Within the biblical framework, mankind is viewed as a royal ambassador, ruling on behalf of the creator over his good creation. But royal Adam, and thus all of us, failed in that mission. And later within the Pentateuch, Abraham and Sarah, they too are to be the means by which Adam's disaster is made right. This theme is not picked up very often, but what does it say about who Abram and Sarai are? They are royalty. They are royalty. Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceed, and it's repeating what was said of Adam as well, said to Adam, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. From whom do kings come? Kings beget kings, right? He's royalty. And of Sarah, I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. If you're a queen... You give birth to royalty. This is what it's saying. In saying that Abraham and Sarah are royalty, it is also defining what it means to be royalty over against the royalty of the world. And this is a story of scripture, a story about God's rescuing and restoring his royal sons. Israel, too, who was to be royal, of course they were. They descended from, uh, from Jacob, who descended from Isaac, who descended from Jacob, uh, from Abraham. And, and he is royal. 
If they descended from royalty, they are royal. They were to be the means of bringing the world back into its restored vocation. In Exodus 19, they are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A priesthood, a royal one, means that the dual calling of royal priesting, to coin a term, would be done on behalf of others. And this is what Israel was called to do. But Israel, too, had failed to fulfill the royal priestly vocation to become a light to the nations, we know from from Isaiah 40 through 55. And thus the Messiah, built upon the model of David, the king of Israel, would embody the true king, the true royalty. This, I believe, is part of what Mark is saying. In the enthronement of Jesus through the cross, all mankind, Israel first and then the nations, will be restored as heirs, as true royalty. But he himself must be enthroned first. And Jesus himself is demonstrating what it truly means to be royal. This is also done within the story of Abraham and the patriarchs. I mean, why call someone royal? if you're not going to show what it means to be truly royal by calling them that. There's a redefinition of royalty going on here. There's a demonstrating here in Mark and and other places, but here in Mark, demonstrating how the true king is to be enthroned and to exercise his power. What it means to be genuinely royal gains its meaning against the backdrop of the exercise of power that we see in the leaders of Israel and Pilate. Look, there's this contrast between the leaders of Israel and of Pilate and that of Jesus. What does a true king look like? What is true royalty supposed to do and be? We don't, we don't often look at the story of the cross or of the crucifixion as a story about royalty and power, but it actually is the story about power because kings must exercise that and Jesus a king. More precisely, it's a story about two types of power, of the exercise of two types of power. And what do we see by the contrast presented there? True royalty and the exercise of genuine royal power is based on truth and not lies. What have we seen coming up to this point? How have the kings of this world operated? How have the kings in Israel operated, the leaders in Israel? They've operated on lies. How has the the truly royal son operated? On truth. For Pilate and the Jewish leaders, the exercise of power was based on lies and distortions. Not in Jesus' kingdom. Not in the kingdom that we're supposed to inhabit. This is what makes it difficult for Christians in the public arena. It is no easy thing to maintain one's calling, one's royal calling, in the sense of Jesus' royal calling in this current environment. Doesn't mean that people shouldn't, it just means it's difficult because lies tend to build political systems. Just watch C-SPAN. I can't help but imagine how many of our politicians whisper to themselves, what is truth? What is truth? We define truth. That's the answer of an autocrat. Anyone who thinks these monsters wouldn't jail us and kill us if they could (coughs) needs to wake up because this is how political power operates, but not within Jesus' kingdom. 
not within the kingdom that, that we're supposed to inhabit, not within our lives, we are to exercise true royal power. The exercise of true royal power is not based on threats of violence and the threat of death. For Pilate and the Jewish leaders, the exercise of royal power meant that they could lord it over Jesus. And Jesus warned of this. Do not be like them. Do not be like them. Death was a tool for them. Death was a tool. What these rulers don't often realize is that it will come for them as well. What Mark will go on to say as he brings us to the resurrection is that the type of power that sees death as its tool and violence as its means has been defeated through the self-giving love and enthronement of Jesus. The type of power that sees death as its tool and violence as its mean has been means has been defeated through the self-giving enthronement of Jesus. And the implication, both in the Gospels and throughout Paul, is that this self-giving royalty is to be exercised by those who claim to belong to Jesus. We are not to build our lives on lies and violence in service to our own lust and power, but we are to speak against it. We are to exercise the true royal vocation by reckoning ourselves dead to sin, to, to self, to worldly power. Not just any power. The power that comes through becoming a servant is what we are to seek. There is power in that, but it is not the power of this world. It is the power of God. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which, was yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And to take upon ourselves the yoke of the Messiah, where we die with him daily, that we too may be vindicated both now and in the age to come. This is our lot, church, and this is what it truly means be royal. Let us embrace it and go with him, as the author of Hebrews says, outside the gate to bear his reproach. God help us to do so. I'll close with this. One of the most fitting passages that makes the connection between the self-giving and the royal calling is Romans 8, 31 through 39. At the end of a passage about how God is renewing all creation, and ahead of that, how he is renewing us, his creatures, he connects the suffering of the saints with the royal vocation, the restoration of the Adam vocation. You may need to go, go back and read Romans 8. In light of, in light of the story of scripture from Adam to, uh, from Adam to uh, Messiah, God is restoring all creation. And ahead of that, he's restoring humans. Why? Because 
humans were the cause of the subjection of the earth, the curse that came upon the earth. So that in order to restore the creation, God has to restore humans, and that's what he's doing through us. And how is he doing it? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, this is very important, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. What kind of language is that, the notion of conquering? This is royal language, royal language. How is that royalty to be exercised? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor depth, nor height, nor Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things that he's just mentioned, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How can Paul say this? Because in the cross, Jesus overwhelmingly conquered as the enthroned king. If we are to be his ambassadors and be united with him, we, we must be united with him in his death, Paul says, that we might be united to him in a resurrection like his. There is no other way. If we want to be his and be vindicated like him in his resurrection, we, like him, must take up that cross and follow him. Though it won't look like his exactly, we must seek to do it and seek to bring God's kingdom by the exercise of true royal power, the power of the servant.